Due to the graphic nature of this episode, listener discretion is advised. This episode contains discussion of murder and torture that some people may find disturbing. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Wednesday, January 5th, 1977. A group of Argentine political prisoners sat in dank, rat-infested cages in a secret prison in the middle of Buenos Aires. For months, these men and women were prodded by electrodes, raped, beaten, and starved. And it was done just a few hundred feet from the capital city's shops, homes, and parks. But on this particular day, something unexpected happened. One of the military guards told them he had good news. They were all being released. Not back into the city, but to the southern Argentine countryside where they could start life anew. They were shocked. Could this be real? The guard, offended by their lack of enthusiasm, turned on a radio and forced them to dance at gunpoint. As the prisoners danced, a group of military doctors entered the room with syringes and injected them with pre-flight vaccines. Shortly after the injections, however, they started to feel dizzy and weak. And soon, they all collapsed to the dirty concrete floor. When the prisoners awoke, they found themselves in a cargo plane, unable to move, and the door wide open. They could see they weren't over the countryside of Patagonia, but the blue waters of the Atlantic Ocean. Then, a soldier by the door started to push the semi-conscious bodies out of the plane. One by one, they plummeted thousands of feet to the water. These prisoners were just a handful of the thousands of victims of President Jorge Videla's secret death flights. Welcome to Dictators, a ParCast original. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Just stream Dictators for free on Spotify. Just open the app and type Dictators in the search bar. This season, we're voyaging down to South America, where we'll explore the brutal military reigns of Jorge Rafael Videla of Argentina, Augusto Pinochet of Chile, and Alfredo Strussner of Paraguay. With the covert backing of the United States, these three dictators came to power through military coups. And once in control, they worked together to suppress Marxist revolutionaries in a deadly campaign of terror known as Operation Condor. Today, we continue our look into Argentine President Jorge Rafael Videla. Last week, we explored Videla's rise to power through the military and how his brutal reign of terror began. This week, we'll delve further into Videla's rule, his obsession with image, and how he used the 1978 World Cup to distract from the human rights violations his regime committed. We'll examine the short but brutal reign of Jorge Videla right after this. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. 
With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. On March 24th, 1976, 50-year-old General Jorge Rafael Videla and a small group of military leaders seized control of the Argentine government. Under the previous president, Isabel Perón, the country had descended into a morass of economic instability, political anarchy, and violent demonstrations. Government officials and labor leaders were frequently assassinated. Left and right-wing factions murdered their opponents with gunfire and bombings, turning the country into a Wild West. Economically, the country was spiraling out of control. Inflation hovered at 300 percent. Companies closed, pressured by labor strikes and fear of terrorism. Citizens couldn't find work and could barely feed their families. To that end, the coup was initially welcomed by the Argentine people. General Videla had witnessed the pain in his own neighborhood. He had been raised in a proud family of military officers, and he too had committed his life to protecting his country. So when Videla's military junta took control in 1976, it was a welcome change from Perón's reign of chaos. Within a few days, Videla named himself sole president and vowed to restore order by wiping out terrorism and repairing the economy. The junta called it the National Reorganization Process. To fix the economy, Videla appointed an Oxford-educated economics minister named José Alfredo Martínez de Oz. His policies were in line with those of the Chicago Boys, a group of Chilean economists who studied at the University of Chicago under Milton Friedman. And following Friedman's free market ideals, one of Martinez de Oz's first moves was to shock the economy by freezing wages, raising taxes, and privatizing state companies. He also leveraged his connections with the Rockefeller family to secure $1 billion in loans from U.S. banks and the International Monetary Fund. But Videla's reorganization wasn't only funded by private U.S. money. It was also backed by the White House. President General Ford's administration likely saw him as a safe, moderate leader who would defend the southern flank of the Americas from Marxism. So they offered him financial and military support. The military support wasn't just relegated to traditional weapons, but also the clandestine help of the Central Intelligence Agency. 
The CIA provided training for many of Videla's troops, and secretly, they also encouraged the development of Operation Condor. Led by Chile, Paraguay, and Argentina, the Condor Alliance operated a covert network of intelligence agencies, concentration camps, and assassins to battle communist revolutionaries. As the commander-in-chief of the armed forces, Videla was already aware of the usefulness of Operation Condor's methods. So, when he became president, he turned to the underground intelligence networks as one of his most important weapons against left-wing agitation. Operation Condor allowed him to keep a lot of the fighting hidden. Videla knew that he couldn't fight a full-scale war in the streets of Buenos Aires. The military would lose support if they openly killed Argentine citizens. So he simply made them disappear. Videla later justified the disappearance policy by saying that people had to die to win the war against subversion. We couldn't execute them by firing squad. Neither could we take them to court. For that reason, so as not to provoke protests inside and outside the country, we decided these people should be disappeared. And many in the U.S. government backed Videla's insidious policy. Two months after the coup, in June 1976, Secretary of State Henry Kissinger told the junta euphemistically, if there are things that have to be done, you should do them quickly. So Videla didn't waste any time. He ordered his military, with support from the Condor Network, to strike quickly and eradicate all signs of agitation. Within months, Videla's plan seemed to be a success. Many of the Marxist revolutionaries were silenced. The daily bombings and violence that had been common in the Perón days were gone. Videla attributed much of the progress to his secret campaign of disappearances. Back in the United States, officials were elated. Henry Kissinger and President Gerald Ford praised Videla's results. He had single-handedly extinguished communism in his country. And the kudos from the U.S. may have encouraged Videla to intensify his methods. It wasn't long before rumors started to surface about non-revolutionaries disappearing, too. People whispered about their family members being kidnapped off the streets. Many of these new victims weren't even political. Videla and the junta blamed left-wing terrorists for these disappearances. If citizens were missing, they contended, they were likely killed as bystanders in bombings. But people had seen the secret police rounding up citizens. It was only a matter of time before someone fought back. On November 30, 1976, Nestor de Vicente and his girlfriend Raquel Mangin were distributing cans of food to poor residents in Buenos Aires when an unmarked sedan screeched to a halt in front of them. Two men, one in a police uniform and one in plain clothes, informed them that they were under arrest. Nestor and Raquel cooperated and got into the car. It was the last time they were ever seen alive. Later that evening, Nestor's mother... Azucena Villaflor learned of her son's arrest. She went to the Ministry of the Interior, but they claimed they didn't have any information. As Azucena searched for Nestor, she encountered other mothers looking for their missing children. They all received the same response from the government. Maybe their children had just disappeared. 
But as Husseina refused to accept this response, she knew that someone had the answers. So she decided to organize a protest with the other mothers, even though Videla had outlawed demonstrations. On April 30, 1977, Azucena led a group of mothers through Buenos Aires to the Plaza de Mayo. The famous square sits directly in front of the Casa Rosada, the official residence of Argentina's president, Videla's home. The women chanted, We want our children. Tell us where they are. We want the truth. Watching from a window inside the Casa Rosada, Videla was furious. How dare these old women defy his order against political demonstrations? Normally, he'd just have the protesters arrested and probably disappeared. But he couldn't kill a group of mothers. Unfortunately for Fidela, the mothers returned with a larger crowd. And with each passing week, the crowd grew. They became known as the Mothers of the Plaza de Mayo. The protests began to cast a shadow on Videla's administration. And it even started to impact his relationship with the White House, which had recently changed hands. In early 1977, Jimmy Carter took office and he adopted a stronger human rights agenda than his predecessor, Gerald Ford. Carter gave the boot to Henry Kissinger. He didn't trust him, even though he had served under two presidents and even received the Nobel Peace Prize. And he certainly didn't like Kissinger's encouragement of Adela. Carter's new ambassador to Argentina, Raul Castro, made it explicitly known in a report to Carter from 1978 when Kissinger was visiting Videla in Buenos Aires. Castro wrote, My only concern is that Kissinger's repeated high praise for Argentina's action in wiping out terrorism may have gone to Videla's head. A year earlier, Carter had invited Videla to the White House to get the South American ally back on track. Videla arrived at the stately white pillars of the White House on September 9, 1977. It was as intimidating and impressive as he had heard. Inside the cabinet room, Videla and President Jimmy Carter met with other Argentine officials and discussed a wide range of topics, from U.S. financial assistance to their mutual fight against communism. But then Carter confronted Videla about reports of human rights violations. He was keenly aware of the mother's protests and rumors of torture camps, and he demanded that it stop. Videla assured Carter that it was a misunderstanding. Perhaps a few overzealous soldiers had taken the goal of eradicating left-wing terrorism too far. He assured Carter that he would personally look into it when he returned to Buenos Aires. Despite Videla and Carter shaking hands, it was obvious the relationship was icy. Videla was reeling. Who was Carter to lecture him on human rights abuses? After all, it was the CIA who had taught him how to torture at the U.S. Army's School of the Americas. But Videla didn't let Carter's admonishment dampen his trip to Washington. As far as he was concerned, Carter was the new kid on the block. And there were more important American leaders whom he trusted, like Henry Kissinger. Across town at a posh D.C. restaurant, it's very likely that Videla met Kissinger for lunch. They would have greeted each other like old friends and shared a meal of steaks and red wine. Videla might have told him about Carter's demands. 
Kissinger, in return, might have advised Videla that it wasn't really the disappearances that needed to change. It was his image. Coming up, President Videla changes the course of Argentine history. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. In September 1977, 52-year-old President Jorge Videla returned home to Buenos Aires after a meeting at the White House. He came away from the trip with a new mission, repair his image. Kissinger likely told Videla that he was doing a great job of combating terrorism in his country. But what Videla took from that was that his tactics weren't the problem. It was a matter of perception. He just had to be quieter and no one would raise a fuss. So, Videla launched a three-part plan. First, he ordered his lieutenants to be more discreet with their kidnappings and murders. There should be no witnesses or evidence, ever. Second, he ordered his men to shut down the mothers of Plaza de Mayo. They were garnering too much international attention. It wasn't an easy decision for Videla, but he reasoned that if Azucena Villaflor, the leader of the Mothers, was impugning his image, she was, in fact, attacking the country of Argentina. Within a short time, Azucena Villaflor went missing. Her remains weren't found until the early 2000s. The final part of Adela's plan was to utilize a powerful weapon from the United States, not a tank or a missile, a famous New York City-based advertising firm, Burson Marsteller. Burson Marsteller made their name by helping General Motors recover after Ralph Nader's damning expose, unsafe at any speed, questioned the company's handling of a series of deaths related to their automobiles. If the Madison Avenue ad men could help GM with their catastrophic PR problems, they could surely help President Videla. So the Argentine government paid Burson Marsteller $1.2 million per year to work their magic. In the fall, Burson Marsteller delivered their first presentation to Videla. They proposed a catchy slogan to battle the unfair press, which translated to we are right and human, or we are righteous and humane. After slapping the slogan on thousands of bumper stickers, the ad agency ran full-page PR inserts in international newspapers and magazines, boasting of Argentina's vast beauty and history. And they hosted press junkets in Buenos Aires for journalists to see how cosmopolitan the country had become. The positive press slowly improved Videla's image. But the team from Burson Marsteller wanted something bigger. Advertisement spreads and bumper stickers could only take Argentina so far. Videla gave them an idea. Ten years earlier, Argentina had been picked to host one of the biggest events on the planet, the 1978 FIFA World Cup. 
Now it would be the perfect opportunity to shape Argentina's image on the international stage. There's a saying in Argentina, there are three things in life, soccer, tango, and God. And for many Argentines, soccer was the most important. So with hundreds of thousands of spectators, fans, and news crews traveling to the country for the event, Videla and his team of ad men knew it was crucial to present a positive facade. As Junta member Emilio Macera remarked, the tournament will show the world that Argentina is a trustworthy country capable of carrying out huge projects, and it will help push back against the criticism that is raining on us from around the world. Videla undertook the huge project like a true military dictator. He cracked down even harder on demonstrators and bulldozed shanty towns throughout the city. Poor and homeless people were transported into the countryside to portray the cities as clean and prosperous. Most of the citizens were too caught up in World Cup fever to pay attention. All the news headlines focused on the Argentine national team's mixed chances in the tournament. They were a strong team, but they weren't considered one of the best. Then, on June 1, 1978, Videla welcomed the world to his country. He greeted players, world leaders, and spectators. When the news cameras were rolling, he smiled and waved to crowds like a benevolent leader. Videla attended many of the matches, but not in his traditional army uniform. The ad agency's focus groups found that Videla tested better and seemed more relatable in gray woolen suits. But simply hosting the tournament wasn't enough for Videla. He knew that to truly change his public image, they would have to win the famous Golden Trophy. To get his hands on soccer's highest honor, Videla planned to use every tactic he could to gain an edge in the competition. Rumors circulated that Argentina's team was doped with amphetamines before matches. Whether it was the team's talent, Videla's brutal tactics, or just simple luck, Argentina made it to the semi-final bracket. They were up against three strong teams, Brazil, Peru, and Poland. Heading into their semi-final match against Peru, Argentina would have to win by four points to win the bracket and advance to the championship game. Scoring four goals in soccer is a rare accomplishment. Most people assumed Argentina's cup chances were over. But those people underestimated Videla's commitment. Videla knew beating Peru by four points would require much more than doping his players and motivating them with kidnappings. He is reported to have considered other strategies, including bribing the referees. But in the end, that was deemed too risky. Instead, to ensure victory, he may have turned to his allies in Operation Condor. It's possible that Videla telephoned Peru's president, Francisco Morales Bermudez. Although Peru wasn't one of the primary members of Condor, it supported the alliance. And Morales Bermudez had come to power in a military coup also. In a way, he and Videla were brothers in arms. On this call, after a few pleasantries, Videla cut to the chase. Peru didn't have a chance of taking home the final trophy, but Argentina did. And winning the World Cup was paramount for Argentina's image and for Videla's military junta. But Morales Bermudez 
was a wily general too. He pushed back. Asking his team to take a dive would make him look weak. Strength was crucial for him right now. He was fighting his own battle against left-wing revolutionaries. Well, if Peru was concerned about revolutionaries, Videla could help with that. In fact, he knew that Morales Bermudez was being hounded by a group of Peruvian dissidents living in Buenos Aires. According to some sources, Videla offered to make them disappear. And to sweeten the deal, he'd give Morales Bermudez $50 million in cash. All he had to do was make sure Peru lost by four goals. After a long pause, Morales Bermudez said he would see what he could do. The tension was high on June 21, 1978. Peru's pride was on the line, and if Argentina won by any less than four goals, their tournament was over. The day started out with a bad omen for the Peruvian team. On the way to the stadium, their Argentine bus driver got lost. Not once, but several times. What should have been a 30-minute drive took over two hours. The coach and players started to wonder, was it a message from Videla? They knew the stories about his desaparecidos. And then things got even stranger. When the Peruvian team finally arrived at the stadium, they had two unexpected high-profile guests, Videla himself and former U.S. Secretary of State Henry Kissinger. Though Videla had attended numerous World Cup matches, he never visited the opposing teams in their locker room. Until today. The players were shocked. Their fears from the bus seemed to be coming true. Videla told them, Gentlemen, I just want to tell you this game tonight is one between brothers. And in the name of Latin American Brotherhood, I am here to share my hopes that things turn out well. Latin America is watching you. The players understood the subtext. He was watching them. Argentina's soldiers were watching them. Even Kissinger was watching them. The players, or their families, could very easily be killed or disappear without anyone ever knowing. So with that pressure, the Peruvian team took the field against Argentina. Even though Peru was a strong team, they played noticeably poorly. Halfway through the match, down two goals to zero, Peru's coach mysteriously removed their star player, and their captain left the game as well. The Peruvian spectators' boos were drowned out by the thunderous cheers from Argentina. In the end, Argentina won by six to zero, two more goals than they needed to advance. And with that, they were on their way to the much-awaited final match against the Netherlands. Four days later, at the climactic game, over 70,000 spectators packed into the Estadio Monumental in Buenos Aires. Sitting beside Videla in the VIP booth was, of course, Henry Kissinger. It was a hard-fought game. At the end of regulation time, the score was tied, so they went into overtime. And then, miraculously... Argentina scored. 70,000 spectators erupted in cheers and every other emotion. It was a shining moment for the country. 
During the ceremony, Videla joined the players on the field to hoist the trophy over their heads. As far as Videla knew, the World Cup was an overwhelming success. But for many in the world, including the United States, the whole spectacle seemed like smoke and mirrors. Sports journalists questioned Argentina's win, and many openly accused Videla of rigging the event. More importantly, the whole world press had descended on Buenos Aires during the tournament, and they couldn't avoid focusing on the human rights protests going on in the city. After the disappearance of Azucena Villaflor, the Mothers' March had actually intensified. The Mothers of Plaza de Mayo took advantage of the tournament to broadcast their message to the world. Now, with international news cameras rolling, the women held up photos of their missing children, demanding answers and justice. To Videla's horror, this became the image of Argentina, of him. In spite of the millions of dollars he spent on ad campaigns, witty bumper stickers, and winning the World Cup, he was still a monster to his people and to the world. Coming up, Videla cracks down harder on his people, but it finally brings down his dictatorship. Now back to the story. The following is a dramatization of one of the many kidnappings that occurred in Argentina under Videla. On September 18, 1978, 15-year-old Francisco Lima stayed late after school to work with his fellow student council members on an upcoming school dance. When they finished, Francisco walked home along the tree-lined streets of Buenos Aires and stopped at a corner market to get a soda. When he emerged, he was suddenly grabbed by three men and thrown into a military van. Francisco asked them what they wanted, but they told him to shut up or they'd kill him. They drove Francisco across the city to the Navy Petty Officers School. There, hidden in the concrete basement, was a makeshift concentration camp and torture facility. Francisco was marched past prisoners in squalid conditions. Men, women, and children sat on floors covered in blood and human waste. Rats scurried everywhere. After being thrown into a cage with some of his classmates, Francisco learned that he had been abducted because he was a member of the student council. President Videla's government was afraid they would become Marxist revolutionaries. Within a week, most of the 60 other student council members were brought to the Navy Petty Officer School, too. They cried for their parents, begging to go home. At one point, Francisco overheard two of the guards arguing. Nobody knew what to do with the students. They didn't want to release them back to their families. It would cause too much controversy. But killing 60 children didn't seem right either. A day later, the guards entered the cell with the students and shot them all. The bodies were dumped out during one of Videla's infamous death flights into the Atlantic Ocean or the Rio de la Plata. By the fall of 1978, all of Videla's hard work repairing his image had fallen to pieces. His country had won the FIFA World Cup, but many around the globe accused him, rightfully, of rigging the tournament and the international media presence in Buenos Aires had focused a spotlight on Videla's human rights abuses. Shockingly, Videla decided to double down. What was once his national reorganization process, 
began to be called La Guerra Sucia, or the Dirty War. Ground zero for Videla's Dirty War was a Navy Petty Officer's School, also called the ESMA, where hundreds of prisoners at a time were held in concrete and wire cages. Most of the men and women brought here were not even Marxist revolutionaries. In fact, most of the violent leftist guerrilla forces had already been exterminated within the first months of Videla's dictatorship. Instead, the people being kidnapped and tortured were students, lawyers, religious leaders, and anyone else who spoke out against Videla's regime. Francisco Lima and his fellow high school students were considered the lucky ones. They died quickly. Many of the other prisoners were subjected to months of cruel and horrifying torture. Some were hooked up to car batteries or sodomized with cattle prods. Others were strung from chains and dunked headfirst into tubs of water. If pregnant women were detained, they were kept alive until they gave birth. The babies were taken to a secret adoption facility and taken home by military families. The military likely considered it their duty to raise the children of revolutionaries to eliminate any seeds of progressive thought. Meanwhile, the babies' mothers were killed and disposed of. With so many missing Argentines and rumors of a black market for babies, human rights organizations around the world sounded the alarm. Amnesty International, the Red Cross, and several other groups started tracking and publishing the numbers of those believed missing. It climbed well into the thousands. So, by the fall of 1979, Videla found himself in a public relations firestorm. All the ad firms on Madison Avenue couldn't get him out of this mess. The negative publicity was like blood in the water for Videla's fellow co-conspirators. They began jockeying for control of the government. But the more crucial consequence of the horrible press was the deteriorating partnership with the United States. The Carter administration began threatening to revoke military and financial aid if Videla didn't change his policies. With unrest at home and weakening relationships abroad, all hope seemed to be lost for Videla. Weighing his options, we might imagine that he placed a call to one of his last few trusted allies, Henry Kissinger. Kissinger and Videla talked like old war buddies. Videla admitted that for the first time in his life, he had lost track of his mission. He told Kissinger about one of the lessons his father had taught him, that as soon as a leader cannot govern effectively, he is a danger to his men and his mission. Videla wondered if he was now endangering Argentina. But what would he do if he stepped down? Would he ever really be able to retire completely? Maybe he could go back to teaching at the military academy where he'd spent so much of his life. In the end, Kissinger told Videla that he would support him in whatever decision he came to. However, he reassured Videla that he had, in fact, served his mission. When Videla hung up, he knew what he had to do. On March 29, 1981, 55-year-old President Jorge Videla officially stepped down. After turning over power to Army General Roberto Viola, Videla retired to a quiet life with his family. Eight months later, Viola was ousted by the commander-in-chief of the army, Leopoldo Galtieri. 
In Argentine tradition, Galtieri would prove to be a short-lived leader as well. He was removed from office in June 1982 and replaced by a temporary administrator. Given that the junta had proved itself to be entirely incompetent, the administrator announced that democratic elections would take place in 1983. Videla's military junta had finally run its course. After seven years of military rule, Argentina was no better off than they had been under the Perons. The economy was still in shambles, and an estimated 15 to 30,000 citizens were missing or dead. When the new civilian government took over in 1983, the people demanded justice. Almost immediately, investigations were launched into the junta's concentration camps, torture, death flights, and murders. In August 1984, 59-year-old Videla and many of his co-conspirators were arrested. Less than a year later, in April 1985, Videla was convicted of 66 murders, 306 kidnappings, and 93 cases of torture. He was stripped of his rank of general and sentenced to life. Videla, who cared so deeply about being a soldier, served out his sentence in a military prison. But after five years in prison, Videla received a surprise announcement. Much to the shock of the country, he was pardoned by the new president of Argentina, Carlos Menem, in 1990. Menem contended that Videla and the junta members had served their time. For the country to fully heal, they should be forgiven. Not everyone agreed. Between 1996 and 2010, Videla found himself accused, arrested, jailed, and placed under house arrest by various judges who believed Menem's decision was unconstitutional. Finally, on December 22, 2010, 85-year-old Videla was once again sentenced to life in prison, this time for the confirmed death of 30 prisoners at the Navy Petty Officers School. He was sentenced to an additional 50 years for his role in the kidnapping of babies. During the proceedings, many of the mothers of the Plaza de Mayo confronted the man who had destroyed their families. But through the heart-wrenching testimonies from victims and families, Videla remained defiant. He responded without any remorse, I accept the responsibility as the highest military authority during the internal war. My subordinates followed my orders. In his eyes, he was a soldier, a commanding officer fighting a war. And in wars, people die. Except his victims weren't enemy invaders, they were children and innocent mothers. He was shipped off to a civilian prison to live the rest of his life. This was perhaps the single most crushing blow to Videla as a lifelong soldier with a proud family history of serving his country. Videla died in May 2013 at age 87. Despite appeals from his family, Argentina refused to give Videla a military burial. Ever since Jorge Videla was a young boy, he had dreamed of being a soldier. But blinded by the trappings of power, he abandoned the ideals of protecting and defending his country. In the end, he was remembered not as a decorated general or president, but as a criminal who disgraced and terrorized his country.
Thanks for listening to Dictators. Next week, we begin our look into Augusto Pinochet, the president of Chile during the Operation Condor years. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Dictators for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Dictators on Spotify, just open the app and type Dictators in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Dictators was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Dictators was written by Adam De Silva, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. <laughs> ¶¶